Can you believe it? This is the last episode of the season. So I'm going to take my time and vomit up all over you. You're going to get everything today. All right. You're going to get the intolerance of Christians, the intolerance of truth, the intolerance of biology, the intolerance of parental authority. It's all working together to reshape American life. And if this country falls for it, the rest of the world will as well. Plus, we conclude the life of David looking at the house that he built and left behind and how it's the only house you really need. This is your favorite night of the week. Welcome to the Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. I am beloved, the man they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John that slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to the Deep End with Tim Hatch. Oh, I am going to miss that opening music. We're going to be revamping all of our opening music and uh, outro music uh, for season five coming up August 24th. Mark your calendars. The Deep End comes back August 24th. We're taking our summer break starting today. But welcome in, 7.30 uh, p.m. Tuesday night, The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. And uh, that was D-Rock, by the way. We'll put a link in the description, hopefully below, uh, of his music. You want to check it out. He does a fantastic job for our church up in Massachusetts, waterschurch.org. But he does a great job. Going to miss his opening music. This is episode 33, season four of The Deep End, and we have been just cooking right along this season. And I didn't think I'd get through the whole life of David, but we did, didn't we? Hey, check us out. YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live, and all of our social media channels. They're all right there, including the brand new social media channel on TikTok. They are all easy to find at or forward slash Tim Hatch Live, and that's how you will find us. Anywhere that you go, we want to be there. We want to be everywhere you are. We want to be in your heads, okay? Even while we're taking this month-long break, we're going to be in your heads. Oh, oh! by the way, before we get into Deep End News, uh, some big things happening, as usual, here on the Deep End or on the Tim Hatch Live channel. I have right here this case. Uh, we are going to retrofit, and believe it or not, what we're going to do with this case, this is so cool, we are going to put in this case an entire mobile Deep End studio. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing's going to fit in this case, going to get some cameras, and I'm going to be able to do the deep end on the road. So that's going to be able to make sure we can do the deep end and deep dive and 10 questions with Tim anywhere I am, because I always travel all over the place. And I hope that one of the episodes coming soon will be in Peru in about three weeks from now. So anyway, I'll be there. I'm not there now. Let me know where you are down in the comments below where you're watching from. I'd be glad to have you uh, let me know about that. Make sure as well that you're doing all that we ask on a regular basis, click that like button, click that subscribe button, and finally click that notification bell on the Tim Hatch Live YouTube channel. You might be on Facebook, you might be on your pod- podcast app, you might be on some other YouTube channel. Get to Tim Hatch Live, like, subscribe, notification bell, and uh, just so that we're clear uh, where you want to be whenever we are live, that's where you want to be. Um, oh, the reason why, too, one last thing, is because... Uh, the deep end will only be the Tuesday night show will only be on youtube.com slash Tim hash live, right? So that's why you got to subscribe there only on Tim hash live. Will the deep end be going forward? Anyway, that's enough chatter. Let's get into deep end news, deep end news, news and views that don't make us news. So I did a deep end commentary last week in the deep end news segment, and I'm going to do another one this week. Last week's commentary was the the undermining of the American family. Today's deep end commentary is the encroaching intolerance toward the church, the, the encroaching intolerance toward, and I want to say the true church. Ironically, out of my home state in a town called Medford or a city called Medford, Massachusetts, 
A church was protested by the Alphabet Gang for views that, quote, are not welcome in Medford. <laughs> this is out of Boston.com. My home state is at its crazy antics once again. Uh, the title of the article, Medford Residents, Officials, Protest, Churches, Anti- Alphabet gang sign, alphabet gang, LGBTQIA, LMNOP, QRSTUV, right? Members of the trans community and their allies wanted to let the church know, this is New England Baptist Church in Medford, Massachusetts, let them know that their views weren't welcome here. A church sign commenting on gender identity in Medford sparked dueling but peaceful protests this past Friday evening. Community members and elected officials gathered outside New, New England Baptist Church on Salem Street to protest a sign that read, male and female created he them, Genesis 5-2, gender identity solved. So uh, this, this, this church sign, you, you know the old church signs where they put the little letters and they change the sign up and they make little funny comments sometimes and uh, you, know, you know those old style church signs. Well, anyway, this church decided to say, male, female. God created him that way. And, uh, and so this, this sign on private church property sparked outrage in the town and they had to have a big protest across the street in Medford, Massachusetts to say, to say, you're not welcome. You're not welcome. And, and this is a quote actually from, um, uh, from Dan Kennedy. He's a North, Northeastern University journalist professor. He called the sign an anti-LGBTQ message. No one, he says, quote, no one was demanding that the church remove the message. It's protected by the First Amendment. But members of the trans community and the allies want to let them know that their views weren't welcome. A party atmosphere prevailed, at least on our side. We walked in front of the church once and then stood out on the opposite side of the Salem Street, waving flag signs and motors honked their horns in support. So now it's becoming blatant intolerance, friends. Now it's becoming blatant, uh, more and more blatant, this, this, this subtle covert, you know, undermining of uh, tolerance in America. The same people who claim to be the tolerant for tolerance and diversity and conclusion and inclusion, sorry, have stopped hiding the fact that only their views are what they mean when they say tolerance, diversity and inclusion. So I, I kind of just had to thought like, this is the message that they're sending. Dear Bible believing Christians, you are not welcome here. Signed, the tolerant inclusive people. <laughs> It's kind of where we are. Uh, you know, the, the, this, is, this is modern America. This is 21st century America. And there's no turning back as far as I can see. It's only going to escalate. And anti-Christian sentiment is only going to escalate from these secular progressives who want to annihilate the biblical foundations of our society. And there are biblical foundations to our society. Uh, no matter what resource you search on the histor history of this country, there is a ton of biblical and gospel foundation to our country. Anyway, the uh, civic leaders all on the side of the pro-LGBT alphabet gang people, this is the mayor, John Falco, tweeted out, proud to support and stand with our LGBTQ plus community. Uh, this is Councilman Zach Bears, two, four, six, eight, Medford has no room for hate. I was proud to join so many Medford residents tonight, standing in solidarity. Da, 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 da. I don't know about you, but that two, four, six, eight, uh, we don't stand for hate thing, that totally gets me. Like every time, it gets me right here, like right here. Two, four, six, eight. <laughs> what is it? We rhyme. We sound like cheerleaders from junior high. Uh, this is uh, Councilwoman Nicole Morrell. So proud to be a part of this community that came out to show hate that hate has no home here. So, so a biblical view is now hate. A biblical message, a scriptural message, is now hate. And and all the all the uh, New England leaders. Uh, and I've lived my whole life in New England up until the last year, and I know this for sure that this area, the New England area 
hardcore liberal progressive, hardcore secularists, uh, the foundation, the, the, the place where it all started with Puritans seeking religious freedom uh, now has jettisoned, jettisoned all types of religious freedom. And what you're going to start seeing is religious non-freedoms. Really, this is what's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, maybe my kid's lifetime, unless God intervenes with a supernatural wave of revival in this area. It's going to get worse and worse. Anyway, I have pictures for you of the protest. This is a picture of the church. So New England Baptist Church there on Main Street uh, in Medford, Massachusetts. I think it's Main Street. I forget where it was. Anyway, there's a sign there to the left. And you can see there's uh, members there and the middle guy here. He, he's um, preaching uh, about homosexuality. And, uh, and then the counter protest happened on the other side of the street. And uh, you can see this went into well into the night. So here on the left, you have the counter protesters. Here on the right, you have the church. And, um, and then later on, you had them talking to each other. So there's the guy with the Black Lives Matter mask and the fist in the air. And he's a white guy with a mega horn. And <laughs> he's just talking to the pastors and the leaders of the church. And I guess the good news is that it remained peaceful. The good news is that it did remain peaceful. I don't know if I have a video here. I don't. Uh, I, I don't have a video. The, the, the question that I have, though, and, and this is the commentary part of the news segment, is should the church do this? Should the church put these kind of messages out on public display, like you can see here on the left-hand side of the picture at New England Baptist Church in Medford, Massachusetts? I would advise no. I would advise no. Because you have to consider your audience, okay? The messages that confront your audience and I would say rile their feathers. The, and and <laughs> what, are, what are feathers on a bird? They're on the outside of the bird, they're not in the center of the bird. So there are messages in the, in the scriptures, got the scriptures right here, that, that ruffle the feathers of unbelievers. And we've gotta be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, shrewd as serpents, Jesus says. In another passage, Jesus says, don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't cast your pearls before swine. This is a cultural euphemism that comes from Jesus today. Jesus talked about shaking the dust off of your feet when people didn't listen to you in one town. If they don't listen to you in one town, Jesus says, move on to another. Uh, Jesus himself ignored Herod when he was asked to provide a sign or miracle that he was the son of God. Jesus was silent before Pilate when he was facing impending death and judgment. I mean, I mean, this is the model that Jesus kind of maps out for us. In fact, if you look at the, message, the ministry of Jesus, he spoke to the crowds in parables, but he explained everything to his disciples who had given up everything to follow him. There is... There is a sacred trust to the truth of God that we've got to be careful with and not just kind of give to people who are not going to receive it. The only message that we have to non-believers is Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's offensive enough. We don't need to start picking fights over homosexuality and, and all this kind of stuff and, and transgenderism to non-believers. Now you say, well, you talk about these things a lot on the deep end. Yes, I do. Because I'm expecting that the deep end audience, the Tim Hatch Live audience is a vastly Christian audience. We target our ads to, to Christians. We target our ads to people who believe in Jesus already. So we're, we're trying to equip Christians on how to navigate a Christian lifestyle through a secular worldview, okay? And, and so uh, dominant secular worldview. And so, so when it comes, though, to our message to those who are our neighbors, it's not, hey, we know you're wrong about this issue. It's Jesus died for your sins. And, and here's another fact, and this is a pastoral concern. There is far, there are far too many hungry people for spiritual truth, for the church to waste their time trying to convince the spiritually hateful people. Uh, focus on the spiritually hungry 
Don't waste your time on the spiritually hateful. Summing it up nicely, right? And, and then when it comes to the hate, what's the, what's the response? The response is Romans 12. Like if we get hate for our message, when we don't you know, overtly try to offend with fringe issues, secondary issues to salvation, such as marriage and gender and all those kind of things, well, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. He will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil evil with good. So we present truth, and when people hate us for it, we love them back. By, by the way, the deep end gets intolerance. The deep end just just this week <laughs> got some targeted intolerance from Google. I, I'm sure you're aware that Google is not fair. Google is not balanced. Google is not, you know, uh, disconnected from an agenda in this country. If you don't believe that, you are sitting duck for their for their devices. This is a message that came back from the Google AdWords people. They said that our our video that we put up about Christians and LGBTQ. By the way, look at the title of the video: Christians and LGBTQ. So I'm trying to talk to Christians about where the foundations of this movement came from. We talked about this about five or eight episodes ago on the deep end. Uh, so we made this an ad that we targeted Christians, and now for the second time, not the first time, the second time, they have removed the ad, and they, and I don't know if you can see it, why did they remove it? Look at, look at the uh, certificate required election advertising in the United States. So we're supposed to call this election advertising. It's not election advertising to talk about what Christians should believe about homosexuality or sexuality all, uh, all together. So, so we... <laughs> purposely never tell you who to vote for on the deep end. I, I never tell you what politi politician to support. Um, I think Christians should do their research and vote for themselves. And even if you vote different than me and you're Christian, I welcome you as brother and sister in Christ. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about, again, a, a show teaching you how to wade through the waters of the cultural issues under a dominantly secular worldview. That's what the show is for. But anyway, we're getting hated. We're getting intolerance. It's going to happen. It's going to increase. And, and and that's why you come here. That's why I do this. That's why I can't wait to get back to season five starting August 24th. Okay, don't make sure. Make sure you mark down your calendars because we're going to be back with full gusto when we come back for season five. Anyway, moving on. I told you I was going to vomit all over you this week, and uh, we're going to do it. So this is out of the Christian Post. This this is why we talk about these issues concerning the progressive sexualization of everybody, the, the progressive sexual morals of our day. From the ChristianPost.com, put the article up, the article title, We're Now Pray for Men, colon, California women inmates decry being housed with male prisoners. So back in September 2021, no, sorry, September 2020. <laughs> September 2021 hasn't come yet. Back in September 2020, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, signed a law into effect that allowed transgender people to move to the prison facility of their choosing <laughs> based on their perceived gender. Can you believe this? We're giving prisoners now a choice. Criminals, rapists, murderers, a choice as to what prison they want to go to. And all they got to do is identify as the opposite sex. So that was September 2020. Flash forward. 10 months and rape and pregnancies and abortions oh, and condoms made available to inmates are now standard practice in California prison, prisons. That's what this article is all about. This is yay, yay equality, right? I'm finally who I'm supposed to be. Do you understand? I can't go back. 
So no one could have seen this coming, right? This is from the article. The article reads, um, female inmates in the California prison system say they're now praying for men as correctional facilities prepare for an uptick, an uptick in rapes and pregnancies following a policy change that allows men who identify as female to be transferred into women's only prisons. Um, and then from the article, posters displayed in these medical clinics in the prison advertise a variety of options for pregnant people. Notice the word <laughs> pregnant people. Oh my gosh, dear Lord. Who might become pregnant while in prison. The methods available to female inmates to prevent pregnancies are condoms and the emergency contraception plan B. Uh, yet these measures were only deemed necessary after California Department of Correction, after the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation starting allowing men who claim a gender identity other than their biological sex to be housed with women earlier this year. Women's Liberation Front uh, sources reported. Now, now, catch this part of the article. This is hilarious. Trusted sources inside California Institute of Women tell us that the the one reason for the backlog in transferring men who have requested transfer is the prison is making the men. The men who want to go to a female prison because they're now suddenly identifying as a female. They are making these men take a course in how to deal with their fears about living with women. Now, as a married man, I can understand the fears of living with men, women, but this is not what they're going through. <laughs> this is not what they're going through. They are predators. They want to dominate women. Back to the article. In April, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation implemented a new mandatory 16-hour class as a prerequisite for any inmates wishing to transfer. So they, they, they mandate a class for men who want to transfer to a women's prison that you have to learn how to handle your fears about living with women? Are you kidding me? Are you, this is back in April. So now here we are just a couple months removed from April, and now the men are dominating, raping, and abusing the women. Shouldn't, shouldn't there be a class for the women on how to live with their fears of these men coming into their prisons. I mean, but you know, society is crazy. Anyway, the article goes on at a recent captain's meeting at the central California women's facility. A woman reportedly read a statement in which she implored prison staff for help and said correctional officers disregarded their fears about having to share close quarters with rapists. Yeah. Yeah. Serial rapists are going into the female prison and the California legislature, the California government is making it happen. No one could have seen this coming. Amber Jackson was an inmate at one of these facilities. She actually writes often in the Santa Monica Observer. She wrote, the one man I saw up close looked unhealthy and possibly diseased. I have little doubt these trans women are positive for communicable diseases. This is a disgusting time to be in prison. Then she claims three out of the four trans identifying, uh, trans identifying men that she wrote about are HIV positive. Like I said, she writes in the Santa Monica Observer, this is what she says, uh, quote, the public at large is unaware of this ha happening. The public does not know that there are now men with penises, HIV positive, and having sex with women in California women's prisons. Nobody's making this known, and she's 100% right. Nobody knows about this. Um, we are in danger here. Make no mistake, prison rape is nothing new. However, until now, there were never live males with full male anatomy sharing showers with us in a group shower room. We have male officers who have to announce their presence when they even walk down the hall in case we're undressed, yet now men can share our showers. And this is again, this is from Amber Jackson, a inmate in a California uh, prison right now, writing in the Santa Monica Observer. Unbelievable, friends. This, this, this is, you know, the scripture talks about when the foundations are removed, 
What can the righteous do? And no one's talking about it. this. Is an attack on women, and no news media is talking about. It. That's why you come to the, 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 the deep end, the, 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 the deep end, because we will talk about these things. By the way, it was California who became the first, which became the first state in 2017 to use tax dollars to fund a sex change for a convicted murderer, almost 31 years, 41 years after the murder. So this is a picture of Shiloh Heavenly Queen, a 57-year-old convicted killer serving a life sentence in California. He, in 2017, became a woman funded by the taxpayers of California. What did he do? Back in 1980, he robbed and killed Shahid Ali Bayag, a father of three in downtown Los Angeles, stealing $80 in his car during a drug and alcohol-fueled rampage. And his victim's daughter, okay, spoke out and said, it makes me sick that my tax dollars helped pay for my father's killer to become a woman. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in crazy town. We are in crazy town, right? So, so in case, by the way, you're not keeping score of what's happening to women in our progressive secular wisdom of the age, the alphabet gang and the progressive secularists are literally robbing women of their dignity. Let's add it up, shall we? Making sure, number one, number one, making sure biological men win Olympic competitions over women. So this guy from New Zealand couldn't hack it in the men's field. So he just becomes a woman and now he's dominating the women in Olympic competition. Number two, making sure that biological men win beauty contests over women. Number three, making sure biological girls are given life-altering drugs without parental consent during the confusing time of prepubescence. We talked about that with irreversible damage. And then number four, making sure that biological men can now freely rape women in prisons. And if they get them pregnant, no worries, we'll just hand them an abortion pill. <laughs> this is where we are going as a society. This is why these things matter. This is why Christian biblical truth matters. It's the only way to make sense of humanity and communities. And when you take away these foundations, it is not men who suffer. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And I'm a man and I'm talking about, I'm a cisgender white heterosexual male. And I'm telling you that the problem with all of this nonsense is that women suffer. For all the attacks that I have heard over the course of my life on how misogynistic this holy book is, is quite embarrassing to see just how much further secular progressives are bringing misogyny into the world. Of course, they don't call it misogyny. They call it fairness. <laughs> so let's talk about the score. Let's talk about the score. Here's the scoreboard, just so you're, so, so you're clear about it. Biological men, four. Biological women, zero. And all of this is part of sin's consequence. It all brings us back to the original curse of sin that was brought upon humankind through Adam and Eve and their disobedience to God. What God said to the woman was, because of sin, because of your decisions, here's how it's going to go. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And that's exactly what's happening all these many thousands of years later, Genesis 3.16 coming true as men dominate women in, in a far, far more removed or detached culture from biblical truth in the gospel. The ironic result is that in the name of equality, men still rule. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not hating on anyone. I'm just sharing the facts. This equality ideology is a veneer 
for the root of men's hearts, the vicious, hateful, me-first, dominating women hearts in men who seek to control the world. And the problem is us. Now, let's shift gears and get back to you. I told you, we're going to vomit all over you today. CRT and me. CRT and me. So I ran by this, uh, dis, this article in the dispatch, uh, dispatch, thedispatch.com by David French. He's a conservative commentator who used to write for National Review Online. Now he's got his own website called thedispatch.com. And he addresses uh, an issue in a church, a Southern Baptist church in McLean, Virginia. It's called McLean Bible Church, led by Pastor David Platt, a guy who is on the, he used to be a big wig in the um, Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, his church is kind of going through a bit of a split, if you will. They they have these uh, new pastors and these new elders that have been voted in uh, that the rest of the congregation is worried about because they seem woke. They seem to be pushing CRT into the church. And uh, they talk about CRT. They talk about systemic racism, white privilege. They want these things. These these new elders want these themes pushed on the people from the pulpit, and David Platt is the one who is kind of sponsoring these guys getting into the into the uh, positions. Well, but but, but anyway, uh, one of the main problems that they have is with a statement made by David Platt himself when he said a disparity exists. We can't deny this. There are not these are not opinions. They're facts. It matters in our country whether one is white or black. Now, we don't want it to matter, which is why I think we try to convince ourselves it doesn't matter. We think to ourselves, I don't hold prejudices toward black and white people. So racism is not my problem. But this is where we need to see that racial racialization is our problem. It's all our problem. Uh, we subtly, almost unknowingly contribute contribute to it. So, so David Platt here is pushing the concept on his people that they have got to pay for the injustices that they now presently see and the disparities that they now presently realize between black and white people. So David uh, David French, uh, the writer of the article, goes on for quite a while discussing how. This is actually biblical and responsible to address the systemic injustices of our day, the, 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 the overt inequality between blacks and whites. And, and, and he talks about it from a biblical mindset. Uh, in fact, he actually brings up an episode of the Bible that we discussed a few weeks ago here on the, li- on the life of David. When, when, when the nation was judged for Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. Remember that story that the, the people experienced three-year famine? I think it was like two episodes ago. And God says to David, it's because of how Saul mistreated the Gibeonites. And so Israel remained responsible. This is actually from the article itself. He's quoting from the Bible. What? He's not quoting from the Bible. He's referencing the story of the Bible. And he says, David French says, Israel remained responsible for its former leader's sins, and they were required to make amends. The death of the offending party does not remove the consequences of their sin. Those who have been victimized still suffer loss. And if the loss isn't ameliorated in the lifetimes, that loss can linger for generations. Okay, so he goes on and on and on in this article, David French does, to trumpet the same components of critical race theory. White people are to blame, there's systemic racism, there's white privilege, there's structural uh, systems that are in place that uh, disadvantage black people. And, and, and hear me, please hear me for a second. I am not condemning David French's attempt to use the Bible to address inequities. I'm not. <laughs> that might sound shocking to you. He has every right to go to the Bible, as everybody does, go to the Bible and find out how we can make the world better. And if you can find a a picture in the Bible that kind of represents what we're going through right now and say, you know what, this might actually be a biblical solution for our current uh, problems, I'm all for it. Here's my problem. Here's my problem, even though I tend to disagree with David French on the premise of this. The problem I have is not with offering biblical solutions to our cultural problems. 
and even challenges that I might disagree with. This is my problem. Are you ready for it? Because this is a big point. Pay attention. Christian anti-racists love to cherry pick sin and scripture. They really do. Because right now in our cultural moment, the only acceptable sin to discuss with secularists is the sin of racism. And we all agree that racism is sinful. Devaluing any human being for any reason is sinful according to scripture because all are made in the image of God and Christ died for all and we want to bring the gospel to all, right? But what I really struggle with ever since the George Floyd death, and I have been struggling with this and I've just not been able to articulate it until kind of right now, Christian anti-racists, these, these woke Christians, they love to cherry pick what sins they're going to fight against and then use scripture to back up their claims. So a text from David's life that would have previously been ignored for any number of reasons is now the most important text in the Bible that we use to exegete our culture and change the system. But what about, what about the sin of abortion? Why, why aren't you so adamantly opposed to that? Why don't you go and find the scriptures about that sin? Because that still is a sin, right? What about the sin of the destruction of the nuclear family and the biblical and, and the destruction or the annihilation and the mockery almost of biblical sexuality? Why don't we discuss that? Why aren't you so avidly opposed to those things? Why is there always complete silence on the basis of the Bible from these progressive Christians on issues that the culture isn't okay with you addressing? Do you see my issue? Do you see the problem? You're two-faced. You want to be one kind of person in the pew, and you want to be another kind of person to people who don't sit in the pew. In other words, it's only when the prevailing culture thinks it's sin that you will go to the Bible and back them up. And I have a problem with this because the same people who will love David French for this piece and will love his use of the Bible to back up his views on uh, systemic racism and white privilege in this country and its problems. Those same people who will praise him for this are the same people who fought for decades, five decades in fact, to detach the Bible and Christian faith from public policy. They, th th this is my problem with all this. This is why it fails on the merits and I tune a deaf ear to it because I'm just not buying it. I'm not buying the, the, the progressive woke Christianity out there. I'm just not doing it. It's disingenuous to me. If you want to be a Christian, you should be challenging all the sins that you see in your culture, not just the ones that the secularists and the unbelievers think are sins. Because the reality is that we have redefined sin and original sin, and the only original sin now is just racism. The only thing that you can be called that is the absolute worst is racist. Racism is the original sin. It is not, by the way. We talked about this on the debate, that, that racism is a fruit of original sin. And I, I said this before, we, we are not, race, we are not sin, sinners because we are racist. We are racist because we are sinners, okay? If someone harbors racism towards somebody, it's because they are sinner. <laughs> you got to get the order right. Just for, just for reference, like if we really want to follow the Bible's procedure on how to confront cultural issues of the day, remember that the prophets of the Old Testament offended the powerful people. They got, they got hit and they got stoned and they got imprisoned by the leaders, by the governmental leaders, by the system leaders, by the cultural leaders. Jesus challenged the powerful people, the leaders of his day, of the religion of his day. The true church challenged the abuses of the Pope in the 1500s. The true church stood for 
scripture against secular science in the 1930s. The true church right now needs to stand up against the powerful structures undermining the, Ameri- the, the, the biblical family and the freedoms that we enjoy and the foundations of the gospel and the Bible that made our country what it is. You want to stand up for truth, I get it, but you've got to stand up for truth in every area. You can't be completely silent on all the untouchable sins and then cherry pick the Bible for the one that they like you talking about. I'm sorry, just that's why I turn a deaf ear to this stuff. I, when I step to the pulpit on, at my church, I hope I offend everybody. I really do. I hope I offend left-wingers. I hope I offend right-wingers. I hope I offend moderates. I, I hope I offend uh, the proud, the gossipers, the haters. I, if we are not piercing the hearts of people's idols, we will never present their need for a savior. And I fear that this veering, this American church veering into only adopting the one, the sins that the culture likes us talking about is going to produce a bastardized version of Christianity and a powerless proclamation from the pulpit. And people won't get saved. Oh, they might seem nicer, but they won't be changed from their hearts. Anyway, Last week, I talked about the deep end commentary. The undermining of the American parrot is continuing. This is from the Daily Wire. I told you I was going to vomit all over you today. Teachers told students to hide equity survey from parents, fourth grader says. Mom fires back equity is the mask that critical race theory hides behind. Now, this all ties together. But I want to read the article for a second. After a fourth grade Minnesota girl, fourth grade Minnesota girl, told her school board that her teacher asked her to hide the fact that she was forced to take an equity survey from her mother. Her mother went on national television to blast the organizations and oppose their equity agenda on children firing equality, or I'm sorry, equity is the mask that critical race theory hides behind. So that's Haley Yazgar, and she told the Sartell St. Stephen School District Board, uh, my name is Ye- Haley Yazgar. I was in fourth grade at Riverview Intermediate School last year, and I was asked to leave that equity survey. My teacher said that I could not skip any questions, even when I didn't under- even when I didn't understand them. One question. Now listen to this. One question on an equity survey. This is why I say these things tie together. One question on the equity survey asked me what gender I identify with. Why? Why is a gender identity question on an equity survey? Why is a why is a survey on racist issues, okay, asking the kid, a fourth grader, what gender she is? <laughs> because this is the this is the way it's been hijacked, it's been tied together. So she says, a boy in my class asked my teacher if his mom could explain the question to him, even after the teacher explained that he uh, explained it and he still couldn't understand it. My my teacher told him that he was not allowed to ask his mom, and we could not repeat any of the questions to our parents. <laughs> she says, I want the school board to know how uncomfortable this has made me. My mom always tells me I can tell her anything, but she also tells me I can trust my teachers too. Being asked to hide this from my mom made me very uncomfortable, like I was doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. You think? The undermining of the American parent. But there you have it, friends. And this is why I bring it all together on this last episode of season four in the deep end. It all comes together. The undermining of truth, the undermining of the church, the undermining of the family, the undermining of parents, the undermining of our our civilization. This movement presents themselves as working hard toward racial justice, but really they aren't. They are promoting gender confusion. They are undermining parental authority, and they are redefining sexuality and humanity from 
from the foundation. And all of this, of course, is not news to me, and it shouldn't be news to you. If you had read the Black Lives Matter official charter on their website, you would have read the following words. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. We, we disrupt the nuclear family, the, the biblical family, really. And then and later in the, in the same charter, they say, we foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves with a tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual. This is like, you know, you could have known this. We, we all could have known this like a year ago when we just went to the website because now it's all coming out. Now it's all being vomited all over the culture. Now it's all coming out in, in like a fire hose to redefine us as an entire world. And uh, I said in the beginning of this episode, if America falls for it, the rest of the world will fall for it because as goes America, so goes the world at this point, at least at, least at this point. That's, I, I think, anyway. Okay, that is Deep End News. And uh, I'm so glad that you uh, were here all season long listening to me bloviate about all the things that are happening in our culture. Make sure that you like the video. Make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you hit that notification bell. We are going to shift gears in just a moment. Could I ask you to do me one solid favor too, to support The Deep End? I didn't even ask this last week and some of you supported The Deep End. Thank you so much. Go to thedeepend.tv slash give or the cash tag thedeependtv or paypal.me slash thedeependtv. Give support. Thank you so much for all of that. We love you guys. We, uh, I appreciate this uh, doing this. This is a labor of love. I am not paid by the Deep End, and I am so thankful that you help us and support us. Um, yeah, Deep End News. Let's get into the life of David for the final time. So this is the last time that the deep end will fo be followed by the Bible study. And we're going to get into this um, in just a moment. Just a quick reminder, starting in August, deep dive on Wednesday nights at 7.30 p.m. So that would be August 25th. Make sure you like and subscribe down below to make sure you know when we go live. Uh, anyway, this is the title of the talk from the life of David today, The House That David Built. What does David leave behind and many of us would say, well, he leaves behind the death of Goliath. And that's true. But the death of Goliath doesn't really benefit us anymore, does it? <laughs> In fact, it was just one moment. And then there was many Philistines after Goliath. What does the life of David really leave behind? Is a legacy that David leaves behind for you and for me. And, and really what it is, is the house, the temple. And I know he doesn't build it. He actually sets himself, he sets his son Solomon up to build it, but but really, without David doing what David did, Solomon would never have had as much success in building the Lord's temple. And he is essential to this, to the, to the following generation. Anyway, we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to back up from last week's portion of the Bible. Because when you read the life of David, the Samuel account ends with... Um, uh, Solomon taking over the throne and, and then first Kings is the next book. And then it talks about Adonijah's revolt and then Solomon's ultimate um, uh, establishment of, of the kingdom. But then you get to three books later, first Chronicles after second Kings, there's first Chronicles. And then you get to the, the life of David again and kind of like rehashes all the stories of David in some ways and leaves out a lot first, first and second Chronicles leaves out a lot, but talks about the good things that David did. In fact, you don't really find many mistakes that David made in the Chronicles account at, like you find in the Samuel account of his life. 
But in this, in the Chronicle, Chronicles account, you have a lot of detail. In fact, the last half of First Chronicles, the entire book of First Chronicles, the last half of it is how David prepared Solomon to build the temple. So when 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 Holy Scripture devotes that much ink to one thing, one event, you want to you want to lean in. You want to pay attention because th- from chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles to the end, which I think is ends in chapter 36, that's a lot of ink spilled on the details that that David instigated or initiated to make sure that Solomon could build the temple. Let's talk about how it all went down. 1 Chronicles 17 is where we're going to start. We're going to jump all over the place, so pay attention quickly. First uh, Chronicles 17, 1. Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all this in your heart, for God is with you. So what happened here was David had uh, put the ark after, you know, the whole incident with Uzzah and then bringing it back into the city of Jerusalem. He put it in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this mobile tent that, that Moses had constructed for the Israelites in the wilderness. It was not an impressive structure. It was very minimal. And the ark was there. And there is David now. He's living in a house of cedar and uh, must have had no moths. Uh, he's living in a house of cedar. And he looks and he says, wow, the ark of God really shouldn't be in that tent. How, should I, how could I live in this house when God's, God's ark is living in this you know, minimalist lifestyle under a tent? And so here's what it says. David, Nathaniel, oh, sorry, Nathaniel, Nathan says, go and do it. I'm with you. But that same night, verse 3, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build for me a house. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I ever speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So guess what happens here? David has this noble desire to build God's house, to build the temple, and God shot blocks him. It's like, no, you're not doing that. You're not going to be the guy that builds my temple. Now, on the surface, everything that David wants to do seems holy and pure. Let me ask you something. Have you ever asked God for something that is totally noble? Like, like you were convinced at least it was noble. Like you asked God for a, a job that you needed, or maybe you're asking God for a spouse right now, or you're asking God for a child. These are noble things. These are not evil things. These are good things. Even the Bible affirms they're good things. Maybe you've asked God for a financial breakthrough when you ask, and then and it hasn't happened. And you wonder, why wouldn't God give me this? Just like David, why wouldn't God let David build a temple? That just seems right. This seems fair. It seems logical. He's David after all. But listen, context in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is everything. Context. In the ancient world, kings were defined, ancient kings were defined by two things. The size of their palace and the size of their God's temple. Yeah. So the context in which David lives is, if you want to really be an established king in the ancient world, you got yourself a big honking palace, David already has that, and you build yourself a big honking temple for your God, because that temple would tell all the other nations that your God was really big and really impressive. And by implication, it would tell those pagans or those other nations that you were quite the guy and your God was really pleased with you. (laughs) Now, that context sheds a lot of light on this passage with David, doesn't it? Because now we see that David's desire to build a temple may have been laced with some selfish ambition. Am I right? Maybe he wanted to build the temple because he wanted to show off how great and glorious his God was. 
to those other nations and by implication how great and glorious he was. So, so I see David, he's just sitting there saying, hmm, I'm just as powerful as that Hittite king. I'm just as powerful as that Philistine king. Why is his God's temple so big and mine's, my God's temple is a stinking tent? <laughs> and, 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 and God says, no, I'm not going to let you do that, David. And, and, and here's, here's something that I want to say right off the bat. Uh, beware of sanctified selfishness. Sanctified selfishness is when we think we're serving God by doing godly things, but we're really serving ourselves. We do this, and uh, Bible-believing Christians do this all the time. We do. We, we think we're going to church for God, but we're really doing it for us. We, we, we think we're going to raise these kids uh, in Christian homes for God, but really we're doing it for us because we want them to be Christians and we want to kind of validate our parental skills or whatever. Or, or, or we think we're, uh, even like, when it comes to purity culture, we think we're saving ourselves for God, but no, what we're really doing is we're saving ourselves purity-wise so that God will bless us with the right spouse and our lives will be happily ever after, lived happy, be lived happily ever after, right? It's called sanctified selfishness. We can even do it with tithing and giving. Like if you tithe and give, and by the way, you should tithe and give, but if you tithe and give to get the goodies from God, you're not actually tithing to honor God, you're tithing to honor yourself. Does that make sense? You're not tithing because God commands it and God wants you to trust him and have a heart that trusts him. You're tithing because you think, wow, this is like that, that spiritual slot machine. Let me put the money in and the money will come out, right? And, and, and that oftentimes is where Christians fall in. They slide into what I call sanctified selfishness. And you want to watch out for this. You do. And God says to David, no, I'm not letting you slide your way into this sanctimonious atmosphere where you're going to validate your own kingship on the backs of my people building me a temple, which is really for you. Got it? Anyway, that might have struck a nerve with some of you, and you might not want to listen anymore, but please do. <laughs> so verse 7, it says this, Now therefore, thus are you saved to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. So this is God's word back to David. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So, so God does something here. He reminds David of something. He says, I made you, you. And this is, how, this is how I know that this is really about God confronting his, his sanctified selfishness is that, 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 that David wants to build a temple for God's glory, which is really for his own glory. And God is like, hey, 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 that's not how this works. I make you, you. You don't make you, you. And you don't like manipulate me to make you, you. I do these things. I took you from your father's house. When all your brothers were supposed to be picked before you, I was the one who said to Samuel, not that one, not that one, not that one, this one. And the best part is, the best part is for David is that he's getting reminded, as many Christians need to be reminded on a regular basis is, we don't make ourselves, it is God who makes us. We don't make a name for ourselves, it is God who makes a name for himself through us. And, and why you want to embrace this is, is because the heart, the ego is deceptive, it is a poison. It is toxic. And if you are chasing your own glory, number one, that glory will never be enough. Number two, you're not made for your glory. And so it's like, you know, it's like, a, it's like this tumbler trying to run the deep end. Yeah. It's got the deep end logo on it. And yeah, it's delicious. And it makes all your drinks more flavorful, but it can't run the deep end. <laughs> we, we made this so that the deep end news would get out there. The news of the deep end would get out there. This is not the center 
of the deep end, right? So the point is, we're not the center of the universe and God is not the means to our ultimate ends of marriage, family, beautiful children, beautiful house, whatever. And David is learning that here. And here's what you gotta learn. Whoever you are is who God is determining you to be. It doesn't mean that you do nothing and you just sit back and apathetically receive whatever happens in life. No, it means that you just trust that you're not the one who makes you you. God makes you you. And then look at what God says. I will make a name for you. Verse eight, I will make a, make a name for you like the names of the great ones of the earth. And then in verse nine, and he says, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they shall dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. Okay, now this is a couple of things here about the temple that is left behind after David, the temple that gets built after David that God kind of describes what it's going to be about. And remember, David was a man of war. And part of the reason why he was not going to build the temple was because he was a man of war and he shed much blood. And, and so the temple, the house of God, is to be a house of peace. And you can't have a, a, house, a man of war building a house of peace, right, historically. And notice how God describes the temple. It's going to be a place where they will be safe. Just look at these, look at these texts. I will plant them. It's going to be a place where people are planted, okay, um, that they will be rooted in God. And, and it's going to be a place where they will not suffer the violence of men as formerly. And it's going to be a place where enemies are subdued, where there's no attacks against you. This is going to be the house that I build for you, God says. These are all going to point to something. Bear with me. Verse 11. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you, one of your own sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He's talking about Solomon here. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, that is Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and my kingdom forever. And then notice these, these are big time words from God. I will confirm him forever. His throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God is like taking, God is doing what God always does. He's thinking way bigger than David's thinking. He's thinking way bigger than you and I think. And that's exactly how it is with God. He's always thinking bigger than us. We always limit what God can do. And he's always trying to say, say to us, I'm going to do more. But you got to get over this idea that it's all about you. You got to get over this idea that it's your job, it's up to you, it's your responsibility to make you you. That is not how it works. Okay, Solomon is going to build the kingdom, uh, the, the temple, and he's going to be a king of peace who builds God's house, and he will be loved by the Lord. And this kingdom that I built through Solomon, God says, will be established forever. Like when God says forever, he means forever. So this is never going to end. And so there is no kingdom in Israel right now. There is a nation, but there's no kingdom. So what is God talking about? Did God's word not come true? Hold, hold that thought. Let's get into the text again. Verse 16. Then David went and sat. This is important. He sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O oh God. You have spoken to your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations. O oh Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O oh Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. So David just worships God. He just praises God for what he's going to do. But the point that I want you to see is that he sat down before the Lord. And the reason why that's important is because David learns the art of resting in the work of God. 
And for all the A-type personalities out there, I know you guys because I am one, the, all, the, all the super achievers, all the A-plus students, all the people who want to go to college and get their master's degree and get their doctorate, okay? Look, there is something to be said for human ambition, but at some point, human ambition results in you getting a whole lot of stuff and being completely miserable or exhausted. And you need to learn to rest. You need to learn to sit before the Lord and say, Lord, thank you. You are making me who you want me to be. Lord, you are producing in me what you want me to be. And Lord, you are in charge of my life. I, th I think about what you're worried about right now, what you're going through right now, what you feel like you just cannot handle right now. And God is sitting there saying, listen, I'm in charge of you. I know what I'm going to do with you. Don't try to take the reins and manipulate your life. I've got this. Anyway, we're going to get into a bigger picture as we continue in this passage. So let's continue. Verse 20, it says this. There is none like you, O Lord. There's no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth you want to redeem to be your people, making for yourself a great name and awesome things in driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So David just worships and worships and worships and just talks about how God is, you're right, God. You're the one that did this. You're the one that made us who we are. You're the one who's in charge. I admit this. It's kind of like, He's a little bit repenting here without saying, saying that he needed to repent. And then go on in verse 23. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever. There is that word again. This kingdom, let it be established forever. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. That's an interesting statement from David, isn't it? Uh, because you will maintain or build a house for me. I have courage to pray. Now, David had courage to pray before, but now he's talking about courage to pray in response to the fact that God has, going, God has a plan to establish him in a house forever. And the, and the house will be named for David. Why does that bring him courage? We're going to get to that in just a moment. No, no, we're going to get to it right now because I'm going to forget to get to it. You know why? Because David is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the son of David who builds the ultimate spiritual house, the church. And those whom God plants in the church, he sustains and protects. He never loses any of them. Jesus said, I know my sheep and I lose none of them. All that the father brings me, I will never cast out. There's no one whom Jesus saves that he will lose. And that gives us courage to pray to God. Even if you've blown it, even if you don't feel like you're worthy, Christ makes us worthy. You have courage to pray for him, to him because he has planted you in his house through faith in the true son of David, Jesus Christ. Ah, I've already kind of like hinted at it where we're going long-term in this Bible study. So just hang on with me because it gets cooler. Uh, verse 26, and now, O Lord, you are God and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you've been pleased to bless the house of your servant that may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed and is blessed forever. David knows that only God can bless this house. Now we're going to skip way ahead to chapter 22 in First Chronicles. Verse 5, David said, Solomon, my son, he's talking to the people now. Uh, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent. Notice those words. The house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout the lands. The, uh, the nations should know how glorious this temple is. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Uh, what is David saying? The temple has to stand out. It has to stand out among the nations. What is, it, what is Jesus who builds the true house of God, the church, 
What does he say about us? You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So what we're seeing here in First Chronicles, a book that we probably skip in our devotional studies, is actually kind of the undercurrent, the, the foundation of who the church is or what the church becomes, the true house, the true spiritual temple built by the son of David that brings peace to people and peace to the world. And it's supposed to be glorious. Now, here's how it is glorious. There is no movement on the face of the earth that it has been as expansive and has success and, and as successful and, and as dominant and as influential as the church of Jesus Christ. I will prove it to you in one statement. It is the year 2021. 2021. 2021 years from when? From Jesus. Well, who made that happen? The church. The church adopted the calendars. The church made the calendars. Why did they do it? Because they were that influential, that powerful, that successful. There's no movement on the earth. I know that we're living in a post-Christian culture right now. I know we feel like, oh gosh, the church is shrinking and the coat and the seculars are winning. That's just a temporary blip. The Lord is going to always have his church and the Lord is always going to establish his church. And by the way, the church will always be, and I believe this, with all of our flaws, with all of our imperfections, the church will always be the light of the world and a city set on the hill that cannot be hidden. Just like David says about the temple that Solomon's going to build. Anyway, going on, verse seven, David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you've shed much blood. Verse nine, behold, a son shall be born to you who should be a man of rest. Okay, now look at that, a man of rest. A, the son of David shall be a man of rest, shalom. And uh, that's another word for rest in the ancient in, in the Hebrew text. I will give him rest from all the surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel all his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son. I will be his father and I'll establish his royal throne forever. All these things are pointing to something. All these things are pointing to something. And what happens in this text, what happens is David, the man of war, the military genius, the mighty soldier, okay? He subdues all of Israel's enemies and Solomon, his son, comes to the scene and he will not face a single war and he will not fight a single battle and he will be a man of peace his whole life, his whole reign, 40 plus years, he reigns, not a single war. This is a picture for us. It's a picture that I want to put up on the screen for you just so you make sure that you get it. Here we go. David, the beloved, leads to Solomon, the peaceable. David, the beloved, Solomon, the peaceable. Well, David is the one who fights the wars, establishes the boundaries of Israel, and he leads to Solomon who brings peace to the, the land. But they are pointing to something greater. David is Jesus. He is our, he's a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus. David is not Jesus. David is a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Who is the beloved son of God? Mark 1, 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. And Solomon is the one who builds the temple. He is the peaceful man. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have just been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does this all happen? It happens through the cross. And here we go. Very artistic on the screen there. Ooh, yeah, it snuck the cross right in. <laughs> the cross is the war against Satan that brings peace to God's house. Mm. I love it when the Bible all comes together because this, this is how you're supposed to read the Old Testament. It points to Jesus. It points to who we are as his people. And who we are as his people are, we are the people who are no longer at odds with God. Look at that line in uh, Romans 5, 1 again. 
we have peace with who? Peace with God. Who? I'm gonna I'm gonna rock your world because you're not gonna. Some of you Christians are not gonna get this, but you gotta get it. Before you are saved, who is your enemy? Your enemy is God. He's your enemy. If you're not a Christian, God's your enemy. That's why non-believers really tend to have this animosity toward Christians is because they know that they represent their enemy. And the peace that Jesus brings us is peace with God. We are no longer disturbed by God. We are at rest in our souls because Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Friends, this is salvation. And, and so when we talk about peace as Christians, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to like us, that the world is going to go perfectly for us, that we're not going to face hardship and persecution and hatred and animosity. No, no, no. It means that the most important peace, peace in our souls with the Lord of our lives is full and final and accomplished. And now we can live at peace with all men. Amen. Uh, verse 11 of second, uh, First Chronicles 22. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in the building of the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding. In other words, I want, I want God to give you wisdom that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to obey the statutes and rules of the Lord commanded that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong, courageous. By the way, so- Solomon is also a picture, I think, and I, I, I take this maybe a little bit too far in my, in my interpretation, but I kind of do, I, I kind of believe this. I, I think of Solomon is kind of like, he's a picture of the church in action now. And so he's commanded to be strong, courageous, and wise. And I think that Christians today have got to get those three things down. We've got to be strong, courageous, and wise. This is not a season in human history for Christians to be oblivious to what's happening politically and socially and structurally in our institutions. This is not a season for Christians to wilt like flowers and be wimps in the cultural conversation. This is a strong for us to be, this is a time for us to be strong and courageous. I think of Peter and John who challenged the Pharisees and Sadducees. I think of Paul who challenged the structures of every city that he went to. I, I think of Stephen who's, who stared down the religious leaders and had a, a boldness before his accusers. I think of um, pretty much every reformer, every Bible translator, every you know religious leader that we now hail and respect and revere in history. Do you understand that these people were hated in their time. Martin Luther was hated by the powers that be in his time. Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. Uh, the, the, the people who were standing for God in their season were hated by the powers that be that were in their season. And that might be the case for us today. And we just got to be strong and courageous because we are the house of God. We are the house of God. Verse 14, with great pains, I provided for the house of the Lord. And he talks about this. Uh, he's, and then verse 15, he says, you have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, and carpenters, all kinds of craftsmen without number skilled in working, gold, silver, bronze. Arise and work. So there's another command for the church. Arise and work. We can't be apathetic. We can't just mail it in. We can't just go to church. Any, any doofus can go to church. For heaven's sake, I think Satan goes to church. I think demons of hell go to church. Don't just go to church. You got to engage in the work of the church. This is what the Lord is telling us now. You, you arise, wake up. Some of you are still not back in church because of COVID-19. It's like, what on earth? When are you going to arise and work? So anyway, from this moment forward in First Chronicles chapter 23, chapter 24, uh, all the way to chapter 27, David appoints the Levites, the priests, the gatekeepers, the treasury. He establishes all the accoutrements, all the leaders of the, of the temple for, 
for Solomon. Basically maps it out. Now we pick up the story, verse 9 of chapter 28. It says this, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan of thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will be cast off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Um, and so he just continues to admonish this guy. You, you've got to do this. You've got to engage in this, in this program. Really, what you have to understand is David is saying the temple is God's plan, and you've got to give yourself to it. The temple is God. The temple, David is saying, is going to become what God wants it to be. Look at this next verse, verse eleven. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and his houses and his treasuries, his upper rooms, inner chambers, the room for the mercy seat. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the, re- and the treasuries for the dedicated, dedicated gifts. Verse 19, skipping down, all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. Where is the plan from? The plan is from heaven. This is what David is saying. From the hand of the Lord, okay, from the hand of the Lord, let me make this clear, the plan has been given. So the temple is a picture of heaven. The temple is a picture of what God has prescribed for his people in heaven. We don't build the church according to what we want it to be. The son of heaven, the son of David comes and makes it what he wants it to be. A couple of verses to back me up. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. First Peter 2, oh sorry, Ephesians 2, 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God builds, Jesus builds a church and he builds a church for who? For God. And then Jesus appoints leaders in the church, just like David appointed leaders and Levites and teachers and, and uh, gatekeepers in the temple. Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is done by the people of the, ministry, of the church. Understand this. For the building of the body of Christ, till we all attain unity in the faith, back to Ephesians 4, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. In other words, the Lord appoints these leaders over you so that you grow up, do the work of the ministry, and you're not led astray by myths and falsehoods such as are prevalent in our present age. First uh, Peter two five another passage that talks about this. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Like these are the pictures of the church that Jesus came to build. The point is, what we are studying here in the life of David is that the thing that David left behind was a house of peace a house of power, a house of truth, a house of his spirit, a house of commitment to God that would be like a city on a hill that the world would look at and see that our God is glorious. That's who the church is. That's who you are if you are a Christian. Let's continue as we close out this talk. Verse 14, David responds to God in First Chronicles 29. Who am I 
What is my people that we should be able to thus offer this willingly? For these things come from you and you have, and, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and it is all your own. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and giving joy, uh, joyously to you. And so David just kind of turns into a worshiper and he can, he makes a couple of points here that are of key importance. Uh, he talks about the fact that everything that we give to God comes from God anyway. This is why you give yourself to God because he comes from God. This is why you tithe and support the church because it comes from God. And then he says this, we are strangers without God. We are sojourners without God. Uh, and our, our days on earth, they're like a shadow. They're, they're, there's no lasting life on this earth. I get really frustrated with the the uh, the system of our world that constantly tells us to live for now, live for now, do it now, right? Just taking a break from this talk for a moment. I think about the Olympics. The Olympics are going on right now in 2021, postponed a year from COVID. And you know, every year they break out the song Imagine by John Lennon. Every single year, this is uh, 2012 in London and they're singing the Imagine song, right? Every year, this this anthem of atheism is is foisted upon the world. Imagine there's no heaven, like there's no afterlife. This is from, I think this is from Sydney, Australia Olympics. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, no judgment for sin. No heaven, just us living on a rotating rock circling around the sun. This is uh, Atlanta 1996. Every year, every Olympics, they pull this anthem of atheism out. We're all one world. We're all one world. We're all awesome. We're all, we're all, we all need to just live together in harmony and peace. And it's garbage. It's garbage. The, the facts are these. The people who have hope in the afterlife are the happiest people on the face of the earth. The reason why there's an uptick in depression, anxiety, stress, the reason why the younger generation feels lonely, disconnected, and untethered to anything meaningful is because our progressive secular culture has systematically pulled the rug out from under them, pulled the roots of the Christian foundation of this nation under them, pulled the truth of God out of their schools, pulled the, the foundations of family and justice and righteousness away from their minds. And now they are floating in an abyss and don't know what's up, what's right, what's wrong. I bring you to this TikTok video from a girl. I mean, just think about this. She's talking about uh, asexual, aromantic, a aloe vera kind of love. Look at this. This is a reminder that non-asexual, aromantic, and allosexual, aromantic are not always interchangeable. Allosexual. I've never heard of that. Non-asexual, aromantic includes identities such as my own. I'm not asexual, but I'm not allosexual either. My experiences are going to be very different from an allosexual, aromantic person's. I think it's just important if you're an ally who's talking about aromantic issues, if you're talking about allosexual aromantic issues, make sure to say allosexual aromantic. Oh there is nothing wrong with that Stop. term. Just saying non-asexual aromantic also includes other aromantic people who might not experience <laughs> sexual attraction but still don't identify as asexual. Just something to keep in mind. No, that's not something to keep in mind. That's something to jettison from your mind immediately. This is where we are, an untethered world.
Because apart from God, we are strangers and sojourners, and our life is fleeting. And if we don't root ourselves, if we don't tether ourselves to God, we are lost. Verse 18 of 1 Chronicles 29. O Lord, this is the last verse we're going to read, by the way. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. What a prayer. And you know what? I want to end us in this season with that prayer. I do. I want us to stop right there and think about that for a moment. That this is what we really need. Father, keep forever the purposes and thoughts of your house and your kingdom in the hearts of your people and direct our hearts toward you. What a fantastic prayer. That's, what the, that's the legacy that David left behind concluding this talk, concluding the life of David in some, the whole season now, summed up for you in seven final points. He is a picture of Christ, by the way. He is anointed in the presence of his angry brothers to be king. That's what Jesus was. He's, he defeats our Goliath with the weapon of death. That's what Jesus did. He leads us out of the kingdom of self, leading us away from Saul and his ilk. He fights Number four, our battles and establishes our hope. Number five, he draws us. He draws God's faithful to himself. Number six, he provides the sacrifice for the house of God. Remember that, that David gave uh, Ornan the Jezebite the, the, the offering to have the foundation of the temple. He paid for us to have a house of faith to be in the God's house. And number seven, he establishes the order and the structure of God's temple. This is who our true David is. This is what our true David has done, Jesus Christ. And in final conclusion, I bring you to Romans 8.31. If God is for us in Christ Jesus, who can be against us? I have thoroughly enjoyed this season. I think this is my favorite season ever of the deep end. I thank you guys for being here and if you would really do this for me, consider supporting us. I'd appreciate that at uh, thedeepend.tv slash give. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe. Do all that stuff. Click that notification bell. I am going to exit this episode and this season just letting you know I'm going to be busy. We're going to be putting this mobile studio together. I can't wait. Hopefully, we'll be broadcasting from Peru uh, early on in the next season, uh, showing you some stuff, some cutting-edge things happening on the, on the mission front uh, in the name of Jesus. Check out timhatchlive.com for swag. Uh, if you haven't gotten the book yet, get the book. Support me there. That would be great. I'd appreciate that. Love all those of you who have re read the book and tell me that you appreciated it. And uh, all those who have left an Amazon review, I appreciate that as well. There's the social media accounts, Tim Hatch Live across the board. It was season four, episode 33. I feel like number 33 is an appropriate way to go out, don't you? I will see you on August 24th live again for The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. Thank you for watching this episode of The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. And let's be honest, you really enjoyed it. 
So click that subscribe button, click that like button, and also the notification bell so that you can always be aware of when we go live next. The Deep End is made possible by viewers like you, so consider giving today. I look forward to seeing you next time on The Deep End.